Uh, today we are going to talk about Spain and Portugal, focusing on those countries. Uh, they were indeed Roman Catholic empires. They are no longer empires today in the, in the typical way we would think of them, uh, but their history and their legacy, and especially given the fact that they are still to this day predominantly Roman Catholic nations, um, and their empire affected not only Europe, but most of the New World and good parts of Asia. And I apologize, this is, I'm a little technologically challenged today because I'm doing some different things. So bear with me. So the Iberian Peninsula, the home of nations that became known as Spain and Portugal, is strategically located at the intersection of the Atlantic and Mediterranean seas and marks the westernmost part of the Eurasian continent landmass. The Iberian Peninsula is very close to northern Africa and is only six miles from the North African coast at the Strait of Gibraltar. And you can see in the map just how close they are. Geography has indeed played a significant role in the history of this part of Europe. So the early indigenous people in, in this part of Europe were the British Celts and other tribes from Northern and Eastern Europe and also the Phoenicians who had moved westward from the Eastern Mediterranean uh, into Iberia or Spain. In 218 BC, during the Second Punic War against the Carthaginians, North Africans, the first Roman troops occupied the Iberian Peninsula. And during the reign of Augustus, Iberia became part of the Roman Empire after 200 years of war with the Celts and Iberians. And I say Iberians, but these were simply uh, what the Romans would have viewed as barbarian tribes, Goths, Vandals, Visigoths, and so forth. Um, but finally, Rome conquered them. And in 218 BC, Rome established the province of Hispania. Now, Hispania uh, supplied uh, the Roman Empire with silver, food, olive oil, wine, and metal. The emperors Trajan, Hadrian, Marcus Aurelius, and Theodosius I, the philosophers Seneca the Younger, and the poets Marshall and Lucan were born from families living on the Iberian Peninsula. Over their 600-year occupation of the Iberian Peninsula, the Romans introduced the Latin language that influenced many of the languages that exist today in that uh, part of the world. But with the decline of Rome, barbarian tribes moved in. So you can see in the map here, um, and this is from about the early fifth century, the Germanic peoples occupied the peninsula. And I don't know how well you can see it out in the audience, but the large red uh, portion of this peninsula was occupied at this time by the Visigoths. 
and they had established a kingdom in this area, other barbarian tribes. And again, the Romans thought of them as barbarians. They certainly didn't think of themselves as barbarians. And they had been Christianized at this point to a degree, as we'll see later. As a part of the Roman Empire, Hispania was exposed to Christianity, indeed from earliest times, because according to church tradition, the apostle Paul went as far as Spain to proclaim the gospel. And Paul himself makes mention of his intention to go to Spain in Romans 15, 24 through 28, after delivering the gift from the Greek Christians to the church in Jerusalem. Uh, now, unfortunately, we don't have any writings of Paul that are extant that we could, you know, where we could look at those and, and where Paul would have recorded, yes, I made it to Hispania. Uh, uh, that's too bad, but uh, church historians are pretty sure he probably did. And the early church fathers, John Chrysostom and St. Clement of Rome, who was also Pope, Pope Clement I, and Cyril of Jerusalem speak of Paul's trip to Spain in their writings. And most historians agree that Christianity was introduced into Hispania in the first century AD, and it became popular in the cities by the second century. And the weakening of the Western Roman Empire's jurisdiction in Hispania began in 409, and the Byzantine or Eastern Roman Empire, based over in Constantinople to the east, sought to establish a province in the south. The Byzantines did not want to lose Hispania totally to the barbarians. The Germanic tribes had managed to take over most of Hispania, bringing their Aryan Christianity with them. Now, Arians believed that the Son of God did not always exist, but was begotten within time by God the Father. Therefore, Jesus was not co-eternal with God the Son. <clears throat> by the mid-500s AD, civil war erupted between the Arian Visigoths and the Roman Catholic Spaniards, Hispano-Romans supported by the Roman Catholic French. Religious and ethnic factions were mostly the cause, although the natural resources and geographic position of the peninsula made it a desirable location for any kingdom. Hispania was an important piece of real estate. The Third Council of Toledo, 589 AD, marks the entry of Visigothic Spain into the Catholic Church. In other words, the Visigoths abandoned their Arian views and became Orthodox Roman Catholics. At least that's how we would look at them today. And uh, the Third Council is also known for codifying the Filioque Clause. That's the part of the Nicene Creed where we say, who with the Father and the Son. So prior to this council, it was not official church doctrine in the West to add that phrase, and the Son. So here on the screen, you will see um, a painting, a reproduction of a painting done in the 1800s, and it portrays King Ricard, a Visigothic king of Spain, 
when he rejected Arianism and he made Catholic Christianity the faith of Spain in the Third Council. So he came to the council, renounced Arian beliefs, and because he was the king and whatever religion the king was, everybody else was too, uh, the, the Visigoths officially became Orthodox Christians. In 711, a Muslim army coming through North Africa conquered the Spanish or Gothic Roman Catholic Kingdom. Under Tariq ibn Ziyad, the Islamic army landed at Gibraltar and in an eight-year campaign occupied all except the northern kingdoms of the Iberian Peninsula in the Umayyad conquest of Hispania. And so Hispania was no longer called Hispania. It had become Al-Andalus. And this means possibly land of the Vandals in Arabic. And this is, what, this is the name the Muslims gave to the Iberian Peninsula. And the Muslim conquerors were ethnically Arabs and Berbers. And if you don't know much about the ethnic divisions within Arabic groups or Berber groups, you can study that on the internet. Um, look up who Berbers are. Now, following the conquest, the conversion and Arabization of the Hispano-Roman population took place. And these people became known as Muwaladim or Muladi. After a long process spurred on in the 9th and 10th centuries, the majority of the population in Al-Andalus eventually converted to Islam. The Muslims were referred to by the generic name of Moors. The Muslim population was divided by ethnicity, Arabs, Berbers, Muladi, and the supremacy of Arabs over other groups was a recurrent cause of strife, rivalry, and hatred, particularly between Arabs and Berbers. Arab elites could be further divided into the Yemenites, the first wave, and the Syrians, or the second wave. Christians and Jews were allowed to live as part of a stratified society under the Dima system, although Jews became very important in certain fields. Some Christians migrated to the northern Christian kingdoms, so there was kind of like a, a thin part of the Iberian Peninsula at, in the northernmost part that had remained under the control of Christians, had not been conquered by the Arabs. But most of the peninsula was occupied by the Moors, and those who stayed in Al-Andalus became Arabized and became known as Musta' Arab, or Mazarabs. The slave population comprised the Shakilaba, <coughs> excuse me, literally meaning Slavs, although they were slaves of generic European origin as well as Sudanese slaves. So the Arabs brought with them slavery into Hispania. Al-Andalus became a center of culture and learning, especially during the Caliphate of Cordoba 
from 929 to 1031. The caliphate reached its height of, of its power under the rule of Abd ar-Rahman III and his successor, al-Hakam II, becoming then, in the view of some historians, the most powerful state in Europe. Abd ar-Rahman III also managed to exp expand the clout of al-Andalus across the Strait of Gibraltar, waging war as well as his successor did against the Fatimid Empire in Africa, another Muslim empire. In 1031, after years of infighting, the caliphate fractured into a number of independent Muslim taifa, or kingdoms. And so here, uh, Hopefully that's pretty readable. You should be able to see on, on the left is, uh, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> on the left is uh, Al-Andalus at its kind of the height of its power, uh, approximately 719 AD. And then later, by 1000 AD, Al-Manzur had become uh, predominant throughout what had been Al-Andalus. And really, um, you know, even though we can think of this period of Spain's history or the peninsula's history as, um, you know, this is the rule of the Muslims, this is that period, but the you know, the geographic boundaries of the kingdoms and who controlled what parts of the peninsula were constantly shifting. Um, I mean, the Arabs were fighting among themselves, and the Christians, uh, as we'll see, uh, were fighting the Arabs quite a bit. <clears throat> so this was certainly a, a period where there were some areas of peace and prosperity, uh, where culture could flourish and did, and there were areas where there was a lot of fighting going on. <clears throat> Under the Caliphate of Cordoba, Al-Andalus became a beacon of learning. Again, Cordoba, the largest city in Europe at the time, became one of the leading cultural and economic centers throughout the Mediterranean world. <clears throat> Achievements that advanced Islamic and Western science came from Al-Andalus including major advances in trigonometry, astronomy, surgery, pharmacology, and agricultural science. Al-Andalus became a major e educational center for Europe and the lands around the Mediterranean Sea. <clears throat> and the caliphate had an ethnically, culturally, and religiously diverse society. <clears throat> A minority of ethnic Muslims of Arab descent occupied the priestly and ruling positions. Another Muslim minority were primarily soldiers and native Hispano-Gothic converts, <clears throat> or if you could think of them as formerly Christian Spanish people <laughs> uh, who comprised most of the Muslim majority, were minority rather, were found throughout society. <clears throat> So you had this ruling class of Muslim, Arab, and Berber, essentially warriors, 
Um, and then you had, you know, the majority of the population being formerly Christian. Uh, in, at the, by this point, they had become truly the indigenous Spanish population. <clears throat> now, there were also a lot of Jews in that uh, part of the world at that time, and Jews comprised about 10% of the population. They were a little more numerous than the Arabs and about equal in number to the Berbers. They were primarily involved in business and intellectual occupations. The indigenous Christian Mazarab majority were Catholic Christians of the Visigothic Rite who spoke a variant of Latin that was close to Spanish, Portuguese, or Catalan, which is a Spanish dialect, with an Arabic influence. <clears throat> the Mozarabs were the lower strata of society heavily taxed with few civil rights and culturally influenced by the Muslims. Ethnic Arabs occupied the top of the social hierarchy, and Muslims had a higher social standing than Jews, who had a higher social standing than Christians. Christians and Jews were considered dhimis, required to pay a tax called the jizya. Now, this painting on the left here, <clears throat> hopefully you can see that, uh, it's done in very bright colors, as you would expect from something produced in Spain. And this painting depicts Mozarabs, or Arabized Christians, fighting Muslims. Mozarabs were Arabized Spanish Christians who did not convert to Islam. They spoke Arabic, and their Bibles and church service liturgies were in Arabic. There are still churches in Spain today, Christian churches, where the services are conducted in Arabic and they read the Bible in Arabic. The word of a Muslim was valued more than that of a Christian or a Jew in court. Some offenses were harshly punished when a Jew or a Christian was the perpetrator against a Muslim, even if the offenses were permitted when the perpetrator was a Muslim and the victim a non-Muslim. <clears throat> Half of the population in Cordoba is reported to have been Muslim by the 10th century, with an increase to 70% by the 11th century. And that was due mainly to Muslim immigration from the rest of the Iberian Peninsula and Northern Africa. Combined with the mass expulsions of Christians from Cordoba after a revolt in the city, that explains why during the caliphate, Cordoba was the greatest Muslim center in the region. If you go to Cordoba, Spain today, uh, there are many uh, important buildings that you can tour that were mosques or other important centers of conducting business and politics built by the Arab rulers from this time period. Also, Jewish immigration to Cordoba increased. And so Christians saw their status decline from their rule under the Visigoths. Meanwhile, the status of Jews improved during the caliphate. While Jews were persecuted under the Visigoths, Jewish communities benefited from Umayyad rule by obtaining more freedom, affluence, and a higher social standing. 
And as you would expect, um, you know, because of this period, uh, sometimes some historians call it the golden age of the Jews, although other, other historians dispute that and say, nonetheless, the Jews were still suffering in various ways and persecuted. But by comparison with the rest of Europe, where Jews were often heavily persecuted, <clears throat> the Jews in Spain did generally very well. Throughout Europe, Jews were often restricted in terms of occupation and were not permitted to own land. And in most places in Europe, unlike Spain, they were not permitted to live close to Christians. They had to live in their own communities, uh, which later became known as ghettos. Originally, the Visigoths, before their Christianization, were mainly indifferent towards Jews and allowed them to grow and prosper. But under the influence of Christianity, the Christian Visigoths, they again persecuted Jews. Under Muslim rule, however, Jews were generally accepted in society, although not equal in status with Muslims. Now, this painting that you see here on the right, <clears throat> uh, it's a little bit faint, um, it's old. <laughs> uh, although probably the colors were originally very bright. But this painting depicts a Jewish synagogue in Al-Andalus during this golden age of the Jews. It shows a cantor reading the Passover story in the synagogue, and it was found in the 14th century book called the Haggadah of Barcelona. <clears throat> and a Haggadah is simply a Passover liturgy. Jewish, Jewish scholars did extensive work during this period translating Islamic manuscripts into Romance languages and also translating Greek and Latin works into uh, languages uh, like Spanish and so forth. It is possible that the Jews welcomed the Muslim, Arab, and Ber Berber conquerors in the 8th century. They might have thought of them as providing some relief from Christian oppression when they initially came. There were also Jews from Northern Africa and Jewish immigrants from the Middle East who bolstered the Jewish population in Hispania and made Muslim Spain probably the biggest center for Jews at that time and probably throughout the whole world at that time, the majority of the Jewish population could be found in Spain. Again, especially after 912, the Jews prospered culturally and some notable figures held high posts in the political system, the Caliphate of Cordoba. Jewish philosophers, mathematicians, astronomers, poets, and rabbinical scholars composed important cultural and scientific works. <clears throat> okay, so now we come to the Spanish and Portuguese Roman Catholic Reconquista. Ultimately, the Christian kingdoms in the north of the Iberian Peninsula overpowered the Muslim states to the south. And again, throughout the whole period when Muslim rule occupied most of Spain, there were still, you know, battles here and there, Christians trying to retake territory. There was never, you know, there were always little wars going on throughout the caliphate. 
Um, but ultimately, the, the uh, Christians were able to recapture Spain, but it took a very long time. In 1085, Alfonso VI captured Toledo, starting a gradual decline of Muslim power. And with the fall of Cordoba in 1236, most of the South quickly fell under Christian rule, and the Emirate of Granada became a tributary state at the Kingdom of Castile two years later. So in other words, gradually from the North, the Christians are, are pressing into the South and trying to throw out the Muslims. <clears throat> now Portugal, which is kind of tucked over there on the, on the western side of Spain in the southwestern part of the peninsula, uh, had its own version of the Reconquista. The Muslims had done in Portugal what they had done throughout the rest of the peninsula. But in 1249, the Portuguese Reconquista culminated with the con conquest of the Algarve, the southernmost region of continental uh, Portugal, by Alfonso, Afonso III, leaving Granada as the last Muslim state on the Iberian Peninsula. And if you were to look at a map, you would see the, King, the Caliphate of Granada at the very bottom, the very southernmost part of Spain. But they'd been completely kicked out of Portugal at that point. Finally, on January 2nd, 1492, Emir Muhammad surrendered surrendered the Emirate of Granada to Queen Isabella I, completing the Christian Reconquista of the peninsula. Okay, 1492. It took them a long time <laughs> for the Christians to get the, to press the Muslims back into Northern Africa. <clears throat> and keep that date in mind, 1492. Think about what other important world event happened in 1492? We'll get to that. The nearly 800 years of conflict between Christians and Muslims in Spain and Portugal led to a sense among Christians that they needed to always maintain a united front against Islam. <clears throat> Gradually, the concept of Reconquista became associated with the development of a Spanish national identity, emphasizing nationalistic and romantic aspects. Roman Catholic Christianity became an integral part of the Christian and European identity of Spaniards and Portuguese. The Roman Catholic Crusades in the Middle East and the justification for those wars, because those, those crusades were going on at uh, in the Middle East at the same time as Christians were fighting Muslims in Spain. Those became a source of justification for the Christian recovery of the Iberian Peninsula from Moorish or Islamic rule. In other words, if the Pope is convincing the kings of the countries of Europe to send soldiers to get rid of the Muslims in the Holy Land, should we not also as Christians, because you know, the, at this time the Roman Catholic Church was the Catholic Church in the West, should we not also be pushing the Muslims out of Europe in the Western part? <clears throat> and that was their thinking. 
Okay, so here we have on the left a photograph of a statue of a very famous uh, figure from the Reconquista, El Cid. He was born, his, his actual name is Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar, and I know I'm not saying that right. <laughs> um, he was born about uh, sometime in 1043 and died in 1099. And he was uh, an important figure to the Spanish. He was a Christian. Uh, he was from Castile. He was a knight and a warlord. He was known to Christians as El Campeador, loosely translated as the master of the battlefield in Old Spanish. And he is still regarded to this day as one of Spain's national heroes. Now, the interesting thing is El Cid, um, <clears throat> a romantic figure from the past, and he was a real person. He wasn't just a legend, um, but he off, he sometimes fought on the side of the Muslims, <laughs> and uh, you know that's a part of the history that's often glossed over. Uh, it, there were times where he was simply a mercenary, and he would fight for whichever army would pay him. Okay, and here we have uh, a painting on the right-hand side. Um, this painting depicts another key Christian figure from Spanish tradition, and this is St. James Matamoros, or St. James the Moor Slayer. And the painting uh, that you see, and it's, the details might be a little bit difficult to make out, but this painting was actually painted in Peru, in Cusco, in the 1700s. Uh, and St. James Matamoros became an important uh, figure for uh, Spaniards in their culture. He was said to be the, the actual disciple James from the Gospels. And Spanish legend says that James came to Spain to establish the Christian church and protect Christians. Now there is absolutely no historical evidence to support the idea that the Apostle James, one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, made it as far as Spain. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, sometimes people need these stories. So um, this came to be. And um, uh, there's a city in Spain, Santiago de Compostelo, El, uh, sorry, Compostela, um, and some old bones were found there in the Middle Ages, and they built a, a cathedral, and these bones became venerated as uh, the relics, the bones of St. James. And uh, here we have, and it's, it's hard to see it probably this, uh, the title of the painting, which I tried to put up at the top, but it's probably not that easy to make out. But this is another painting of St. James Matamoros by the Italian artist Tiepolo. Um, <clears throat> now, again, this portrays the saint as a warrior going into battle on, the, on behalf of the Christians to defeat the Muslim armies. Another key part of the legend of St. James Matamoros is that on the night before the Battle of Clavio in 842, King Ramiro I of Asturias 
which was a, a Christian province of Spain, dreamt of St. James, who told him that God had chosen James as the patron saint for the Spanish kingdoms. According to the legend, James appeared as a warrior on his white horse with a white banner to help the Christian armies defeat the Moors or the Muslims. In the high Middle Ages, the fight against the Moors in the Iberian Peninsula became linked to the fight of the whole of Christendom. Later, it became rationalized as a religiously justified war of liberation in keeping with the Roman Catholic idea of a just war. And when we talk more about Roman Catholic theology and doctrine, I'll try to explain more about what a just war is. The papacy and the influential Abbey of Cluny in Burgundy, France, not only justified the acts of war, but actively encouraged Christian knights to seek armed confrontation with Moorish infidels instead of with each other. The Catholic military orders, such as the Order of Santiago, Montesa, Order of Calatrava, and the Knights Templar were founded or called to fight in Hispania. The popes called the Knights of Europe to join the effort to destroy the Muslim states of the peninsula. After the so-called disaster of Alarcos, French, Navarrese, Castilian, Portuguese, and Aragonese armies united against the Muslim forces in the massive battle of Las Navias de Toloso in 1212. The large territories awarded to military orders and nobles were the origin of the large estates in today's Andalusia and Extremadura in Spain and Alenteo in Portugal. After 781 years of Muslim presence in Spain, the last Nazrid Sultanate, the Nazrids were another Muslim dynasty, the last Nazrid Sultanate of Grenada finally surrendered in 1492, again there's that date, 1492, to the Catholic monarchs Queen Isabella I of Castile and King Ferdinand II of Aragon. Due to the centuries of conflict and the periods of subjugation of Spaniards to Arabs with periods of independence under Spanish kings, Spain did not emerge from the Middle Ages with an emerging middle class or the beginnings of democratic political elements. It was very feudal and hierarchical and continued in traditional ways. And so here we have uh, a, a portrait um, done by an anonymous artist of King Ferdinand II of Aragon, who married Queen Isabella I of Castile in 1469, uniting Spain and finishing the Reconquista. And something a lot of us real, don't realize, even to this day, among the Spanish themselves, there are still um, some degrees of ethnic and regional differences. And while we may think of modern Spain as a truly united nation, it kind of isn't. There are different provinces or, or parts of Spain that 
feel very differently towards other parts of Spain. And in recent history, some of these groups have even tried to split off from Spain and create their own nations. So, you know, this history of, you know, constant, constant movement of peoples, constant warfare, uh, religious uh, upheavals and so forth, it kind of isn't done yet, although today Spain is predominantly Roman Catholic. Ferdinand and Isabel could be thought of as kind of the ultimate power couple of the Spanish Middle Ages. They established a highly effective sovereignty under equal terms. Isabella enjoyed um, a level of authority in her rule that most female monarchs did not. They utilized a prenuptial agreement to lay down their terms and during their reign, they effectively supported each other in accordance with um, their beliefs. With the end of Arab rule in Spain in 1492, the Jews were ordered to convert to Catholicism or face expulsion from Spanish territories during the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, in future talks, we'll discuss more about the Inquisition and what that was all about. Um, as many as perhaps 200,000 Jews were expelled from Spain, and this was followed by expulsions in 1493 in Aragonese, Sicily. Now, normally, we think of Sicily today as part of Italy, which it is today, but for a long period of time throughout history, Sicily has been ruled by various nations, and at one point, Sicily was actually part of a Spanish kingdom. Uh, so they were expelled from Sicily and Portugal in 1497. The Treaty of Grenada guaranteed religious tolerance towards Muslims for a few years before Islam was outlawed in 1502 in the Kingdom of Castile and 1527 in the Kingdom of Aragon, leading to Spain's Muslims' population becoming nominally Christian Moriscos. A few decades after the Morisco Rebellion of Grenada, known as the War of Alpujarras, a significant proportion of Spain's formerly Muslim population was expelled, settling primarily in North Africa. And if I can back up for just a minute um, regarding the Jews, um, you may have heard, you know, in the news, uh, you know, stuff you've read on the internet or just heard about Sephardic Jews. Well, Sephardic Jews are the Jews, or today the Sephardic Jews are descended from the Jews who were expelled from Spain and Portugal. And, other, you know, a lot of times they were being expelled from a lot of other places throughout uh, all kinds of countries. But uh, the Sephardic Jews originally came from Spain. From 1609 to 1614, over 300,000 Moriscos were sent on ships to North Africa and other locations, and of this figure, around 50,000 died resisting the expulsion and 60,000 died on the journey. So it was truly um, a difficult time. But Spain had purged itself of infidels, both Jew and Muslim, and was set on becoming an authoritarian, almost monolithic Roman Catholic state. The year 1492 
also marked the arrival of Christopher Columbus in the New World during a voyage funded by Isabella. So as I said earlier, we want to keep that date 1492 in our minds because now there had been other explorers who had been in the New World prior to Columbus. But here goes Columbus into the New World at a time when Spain, again, is becoming that almost monolithic Roman Catholic uh, kingdom, soon to become an empire uh, when you look at their conquests in the New World. So, of course, Columbus landed in what is today we would think of as the Caribbean islands. He, of course, thought he was in the Far East that he had reached the East Indies, but in fact, he had reached the West Indies. He didn't realize that there was a whole two continents between him and uh, China. <clears throat> Large numbers, of course, of uh, indigenous people in the New World died in battle or were taken captive against the invaders during the conquest, while other others died from the diseases brought by the Spanish and Portuguese. So it was a time of great upheaval. The iconography of St. James Matamoros was used in the Spanish colonization of the Americas as a rival force to the indigenous gods. He also became the protector of Spaniards from the indigenous peoples of the Americas, and he was depicted as a conquistador. The Order of Santiago, a Spanish order of knighthood, originates from St. James's supposed involvement at the Battle of Clavillo, and a wide number of Mexican settlements were named Matamoros by Spanish settlers in honor of their patron. So if you, you know, today if you see on a map or you hear somebody make reference to a city or a place, usually in South or Central America, and the name Matamoros comes up, now you know what that means. It means Moor Slayer. And now you know where it comes from. Now, at this point, I've decided to stop for this particular um, segment of our study. Um, obviously, there's so much to talk about with the Spanish and Portuguese conquering most of the new world in the succeeding decades. And we will talk about that. Um, but this gives us a lead up to that you know, discussion. And why do we have to talk about this? Well, it's not only Protestants groups that settled the new world. Roman Catholics made their presence at the same time as or earlier than the Protestant groups that were arriving in the new world and they left their mark on both North and South America in ways that we know have lasted to this day. Um, next time we're gonna talk about, um, we're gonna get more, kind of focus more on Roman Catholicism itself during this period. We will talk about the Roman Catholic Counter-Reformation next time. We, we will come back to Spain and Portugal because there's so much more to do here. But I wanted to give us the history, more of the history of this part of Europe uh, because its history is really unique. Um, the rest of Europe was Europe. It was, you know, first it was Rome conquering barbarian tribes and then those tribes gradually becoming Christianized and 
you know, living fairly free from invasion from outside forces for many centuries. However, Spain and Portugal are completely different. Their entire history is one of warfare, of invasion, of repelling the invaders. And again, this idea of, um, you know, which we will talk more about later, the church militant. When I think of Spain and Portugal and their history and the emphasis on uh, the combination of nationalism and religion, the Roman Catholicism of Spain and Portugal typifies, at least in my mind, the church militant, the church on the march, the church as the army of God conquering the world for the gospel. Now, this vision of the church has its pros and cons, and certainly as it was brought to bear in the new world through the, the uh, conquistadors and what they did in South, Central America, South America and Central America and good large chunks of North America, um, it's a, you know, it's a checkered history, so to speak. There's much that's sad to talk about. Uh, the wars, the subjugation of the indigenous people, um, the spread of disease among those people, wiping out whole tribes. Um, you know, it's not, it's not pleasant to talk about, but we need to think about it. We need to be aware of it. And we need to, uh, and, and finally, for us today, we need to understand how Roman Catholicism has affected the religious climate of the new world, the world in which, in which we live in today, the United States of America. Because of course we know that uh, there are many Roman Catholics and nearly everywhere you go in the United States, there are Roman Catholic churches you can drive by as well as various types of Protestant churches. Um, so that concludes what I have for today. Anyone have any questions or comments? Leah. Um, that could very well be the case. That's not something I've looked into. I did mention the fact that there are, even to this day, Spanish churches where the services are conducted in Arabic, they read the Bible in Arabic, and it's possible that, yeah, some ideas from Islam have influenced uh, Christians who live today in Spain. Um, you know, even, even in countries that we think of as primarily Muslim, uh, all throughout Africa and the Middle East, there are Jewish and Christian minorities. And I'm sure that there are, and, and also you have the whole aspect of intermarriage. Now, of course, the religious and civil authorities would have been very opposed to intermarriage, but it did go on. Christians married Jews, Jews married Christians, Christians married Muslims, Muslims married Christians, Muslims married Jews. I, you know, people love who they love and they're going to marry who they're going to marry. And sometimes religious differences don't matter to that much to individuals. And again, we're looking at this from a very top-down perspective, not looking at it from the individual perspective. Um, but certainly, um, 
you know, I, I, there was a lot of, and, and that, that so-called golden era of the Jews in Spain, there was actually a lot of interchange of ideas, philosophies. Jewish scholars were working right alongside Muslim scholars in developing different areas like mathematics and philosophy. And I'm sure there was probably a lot of interchange of ideas, thoughts, religious values among individuals. There was probably a lot of mixture. Uh, again, looking at it, from, you know, looking at it from the point of view of religious and civil authorities, they would have been opposed to that. Um, you know, the thing is, if you're a king over a kingdom, you want everybody, we saw this in Europe, we saw this in England, everybody's got to be on the same page. That's how the Church of England was. The monarch said, here's the church, I'm the head of the church, and we also have an archbishop, but everybody's got to be on the same page religiously. You've all got to go to the same churches, you can't have your own churches, you can't have your spontaneous prayer meetings, you can't read the Bible in other languages, just stick to the party line. That's how kings are everywhere. <laughs> but, but of course we know that people are people and people are not always gonna do what you know, the religious and civil authorities want them to do. If, if they did, there would have been no need for the Spanish Inquisition. You know, there would have been no need for Puritans to eventually leave, many of them leaving England to go find sanctuary elsewhere. So, um, and another thing we'll see is, uh, you know, it's, at some point you go, there was all this Protestant activity going on in Europe in, uh, you know, the Renaissance period, the 1500, you know, beginning earlier in the 1400s, 1500s. Did any of it ever get to Spain? Apparently not. Um, you know, the, the Protestants were persecuted heavily in France. We haven't talked much, much about France at all. Maybe at some point I'll get to it. Um, but, you know, if you think of Protestant activity mainly taking place in Switzerland, German principalities, Northern Europe, England, they just could, you know, to get from France to Spain, and if Spain is largely controlled by the Muslims, the Protestants have enough to do in their own backyards. They never really penetrated Spain um, to any significant degree. So, um, Anyway, any other questions or comments? Anvesh. Yeah. Yeah, Islam Islam's to be spread and it's to be spread at the point of a sword if necessary. You either convert or you die. Again, some, now the thing is, if, if, think of it from the point of the Muslim invaders coming into, from North Africa into Spain. You've got all these Christians and Jews producing goods and services, running, you know, a successful economy, making stuff. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of economic benefit so obviously, you know, the Muslims are like, we want this for ourselves, this rich land where all these, you know, wonderful things are. 
And so it was in their interest not to just, you know, they could have killed off the Christians and Jews, but that would have been a huge economic blow. You know, it would, it would have destroyed the economy because the Muslim conquerors numerically were a minority compared to the Christian and Jewish population. If they'd have killed off all the Christian and Jews, there wouldn't have been much for the Arabs to enjoy economically speaking. So you don't kill them off, you just make them second-class citizens and you tax them accordingly. And as long as they don't convert others to their religion, as long as they stay in the carefully defined places that the Muslim authorities had defined for Christians and Jews, they could get along. Um, so, you know, yeah, I mean, Islam um, spreads through conquest. And Islam wants to conquer Europe. They want to conquer the entire world. They want to spread their, I want to conquer the whole world for Christ. They want to conquer the whole world for Muhammad, for, for that belief system. But I, as a Christian, don't want to do it at the point of a sword. I don't want to subjugate people. I want to proclaim the gospel to them and persuade them to come to Christ. Um, unfortunately, not all Christians have had that viewpoint. Unfortunately, Christians, Christian groups at various times in history have had a, a viewpoint similar to the Muslims, which is, we're going to conquer the territory. You either become Christian or you're in trouble. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Much of history contains a lot of unpleasant things we'd rather not talk about. But of course, we know we need to, we need to know these things. And unfortunately, our schools today, many of them are not doing a good job of teaching the history of anyone. <laughs> I hate to say it, but <laughs> there's a lot, you know. Uh, most of the subjects that I presented to you in this church history series throughout, I didn't know anything about them. Or I knew, I knew, you know, what I knew could have been contained in two sentences. So, you know, I've had to research it myself and learn it for myself, and I'm glad I'm doing it, and I hope, I hope it's profitable for you as well.